0: Let's do the time warp again. Ba, ba. Let's do the time warp again. It's just a jump to the right, <laughs> and then a little the, the right. Put, Put your, your hands, hands on your, on your hips. Your hips. <laughs> Hopefully we didn't lose you guys. Let's do the time warp <laughs> again. Yeah. Welcome back for Blood Sisters podcast. What the blood? What the blood? This is our Halloween special. We are at episode eight. Ooh. Uh, uh,
1: episode eight. Oh my goodness. How do we get here? <laughs> I don't remember. It's all been a blur up until now.
0: That's because we drink
1: a lot. <laughs> yeah. Whoa.
0: Uh, again, I am your host, Natasha, joined by my fabulous co-host, Christina. What's up, everybody?
1: Christina Motto.
0: Now, before you continue, please like, comment, subscribe to our podcast. We are on <laughs> YouTube, Spotify, Google, Apple Plus, Apple Plus podcast oh, damn it i'm so close i'm gonna get <laughs> it together podcast. one day apple plus apple
1: podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts we're more than likely on there yes you look us up we'll we'll appear we're in a black and white photo it says mm-hmm. blood sisters in white and you can see us holding a pretend body
0: who says it's pretend
1: uh we gotta say it's pretend oh yeah i mean yeah. Uh-huh. <clears throat>
0: <It's> allegedly pretend, <throat> pretend. Yeah. um so <laughs> You guys may notice today, it's a little different. There's a little void here in our hearts. That's the sound of the void. That's the sound of the void. Our beautiful co-host, Rachel Cherie, is out on vacation.
1: Out and about, chilling.
0: Yeah, sipping whiskey, flirting with boys, smacking behinds. Mm. Mm. Living a good life. Envious. Okay, we sit here in Wisconsin with snow already. Wisconsin. Um, Freaking flurries and shit. (laughs) Christine, you want to explain how the uh, audio will work with her? Yeah.
1: So she will be recording remotely. So we will kind of cut in her part of the episode as it appears. Um, We're going to each be doing our own kind of story. Mm. Each story is going to be a, a true story that happened on Halloween and we will insert her part when she she sends it to us.
0: So wait, they're getting three separate stories?
1: You are getting a three for one this week. Wow. It is. Not one, not two, but, but three. three. Tree stories.
0: You're welcome, world. <laughs> I
1: know it's what you've always wanted.
0: Exactly. <laughs> All right, so kicking us off, we got Miss Christina Mata. I'm excited to hear what story you have for me.
1: <clears throat> so uh, first thing I want to do before I start is mm. I want to kind of correct myself for last week
0: <laughs> That's right. we were
1: talking about leonardo Cinchilli. um i was going i was we were talking about our cold-hearted question the cold-hearted question was if you knew what date and time you were gonna die you know would mm. you would you want to know and i was like isn't that some type of beowulf shit but it wasn't beowulf <laughs> it's oedipus so the story of oedipus is very very short Oedipus uh, was born to this king the mm. king was told that his son was going to kill him and marry his mother
0: Ooh, I so, how
1: yeah so the king takes this baby baby and puts him up in the mountains to die oh damn yeah so he was like you're not going to kill me and marry my wife put you in the mountains okay Legit. so the baby was actually found by a shepherd And was basically adopted by another couple. And this other couple raised him like his own. Mm. And then later on in life, Oedipus got the same prophecy that he was destined to kill his father and marry his mother. So he left his parents. He thought that this was his parents, the parents that took him in. Mm -hmm. They thought that those were his parents. So he left them. Is like i can't i can't have that be my prophecy i'm gonna peace out mm-hmm. so as he leaves he meets his actual father they get into an argument and he kills him
0: wait peppa piss kills his father or his father
1: kills peppa piss Oedip- <laughs> <laughs> and Pe- piss aka oedipus kills his father oh. yep so the prophecy actually comes true anyway
0: and he still married his mama.
1: Yep. He still married his mom. And then when they found out years later, they had one of their kids was Antigone. Okay. Oedipus and his mama had like four, three or four kids or something. And when they found out that that was actually his mom, the mom killed herself. And then Oedipus, I think he like stabbed his eyes or something. Yeah. So that's the story of Oedipus.
0: Sounds like a beautiful love story. Yeah,
1: beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. So
0: <laughs> we're getting four has stories redeemed today. She herself. Uh, <laughs> Goodness gracious. Week, ladies and gentlemen.
1: <laughs> I know. Ugh. It's been a while since high school, okay? So this week, my actual Halloween story has to do with the murder of Peter Fabiano, who was a hairstylist that owned two beauty salons in the Los Angeles area with his wife, Betty. Now. Peter was the one that got murdered. There's a bunch of drama that kind of goes on leading up to it, so I'm just going to start from the beginning. Okay. And and we'll just we'll just go with the flow. We'll go Perfect. with the story. So <laughs> Peter Fabiano was a former US Marine who was working as a truck driver in the late 1940s when he met Betty and they were soon married. Of course, I really wasn't able to find much information about the couple's lives before the murder occurred and that their marriage occurred, but I did find that this would be Betty's second marriage as she already had a daughter named Judy Solomon. And Judy will come up in a little bit. She didn't do anything wrong, but she comes up a little later. So just to know that's Betty's daughter from her first marriage. Betty and Peter lived in Kingston for a little while, but later decided to move to Los Angeles in 1956 to open up a hair salon. For a little while, Things were going great, so great that they opened up a second hair salon and had a wonderful team of employees. One of those employees was named Joan Rabble. Mm, I like that name. Joan Rabble. Kind of sounds like a rebel, right? Yep. So, <laughs> yep. Joan was a 40-year-old photographer, and she was kind of a dabbler, which kind of reminds me of myself, because it's like, I do one thing and then mm-hmm. I do another thing, you know. Um, I read that she did photography, and she was also a writer, and she also did some sailing for a long while, so she's just kind of doing all the things, okay? So she sounds really fun. She did some of that stuff for, for a while before she ended up in California looking for some part-time work. She was hired, and soon became very close to the Fabiano couple. Although, the happiness for this couple would not last forever. When Betty and Peter started experiencing marital issues, Betty moved out of the home and actually stayed with Joan because they were close friends. Mm. It was then that Betty and Joan actually had an extramarital affair. I think this is when Joan obviously really fell for Betty and thought that they might be together long term. However, Betty and Peter's split would not last very long. Betty admitted to the affair to Peter and they were able to reconcile their relationship under the condition that Betty does not see Joan again.
2: Mm. So
1: Betty goes with it and she's like, Joan, I can't see you. I have to get back with my husband. And they're no more.
0: Are they still she's still working there at this time?
1: I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that they're like, you're you're kind of done. Right. <laughs> It's after this ordeal that Joan meets Goldine. It's her next her next BFF, Goldine Pizer. Right, I love that name, Goldine.
0: Some nice names in this story. (laughs) No,
1: very very cool names. So, Goldine is a receptionist who was briefly married in 1944, but that relationship did not last. After she was divorced, she was known to date women. So. Goldine and Joan quickly became close friends who became even closer. Joan and Goldine, Joan told Goldine, sorry, all about the ordeal that she experienced with the Fabianos and even went as far as to tell Goldine that Peter was abusive and had an issue with narcotics. So for me, I just have to step step away from the story for a second. At this point, it would be clear that Joan is not over Betty. <laughs> Move on. Right. Like, red flashing lights, you know. <laughs> However, Goldine is not this type of person. She seems to be a bit of a pushover. And she just kind of keeps going with it. I don't mm-hmm. know if she's just really into Joan at this point. She's just like, I will listen to you. I will be there for you. But it's like, have you ever been with someone that was just obviously not over an ex Mm. and they won't stop talking about them that was ah, this situation that was joan joan would not stop talking about betty and peter Mm. she needed a chill oh joan joan (laughs) freaking joan so after about four months of planting seeds in goldine's head joan is able to convince goldine about what needs to be done Joan gives Goldine the money to purchase a gun. Goldine purchases a 38 Smith and Wesson and states that she needs it for her own protection. Hmm. So fast forward to Halloween. Here we are. October 31st, 1957. Joan borrows her friend Margaret's car and drives it over to Goldine's home. This way, Joan's car is in the driveway, and she can say that she's been home all evening. And, of course, the neighbors are going to be like, yeah, she must have been home all evening. Her car was in the driveway. Joan brought with her a costume, okay, a makeshift costume. It's some blue jeans, a khaki jacket. So she had
0: a sheet over her head. I'm right. sorry. <laughs> sheet? Sorry, blue jeans. Would,
1: you know what? That. I mean, she should have done something like that. Instead, she's got some blue jeans, a khaki jacket, red gloves, makeup, a hat, and some eye masks. So she just kind of looks like a fake ass superhero. Okay. Wearing jeans. You know. Nice costume. At least if you're wearing a ghost costume, just a sheet, you can't tell if it's a man or a woman. Ain't true. That's true. You know what? That would have been better. Mm-hmm. Anywho, Goldine gets dressed into this whatever it is, costume, and they drive over to Peter and Betty's house around 9 p.m. And they actually stake out the home and wait until the lights go out around 11. It was trick-or-treat that night in the neighborhood, and the last trick-or-treaters have gone home. However, there was about to be a straggler. (laughs) So, the lights go out. Goldine gets out of the car in her costume and rings the doorbell. No response from inside the home. She rings it a second time. Finally, she hears some shuffling to the door. As expected, it's Peter Fabiano. He's 35 years old at this time. Mm. Peter asks, It's a little late for this, isn't it? The masked person looks at Peter with a paper bag in her hand and simply replies, No. Oh. Little does Peter know the bag has the gun inside that Goldine is holding. Goldine lifts up the paper bag, holds it up to him, and shoots him through the bag, hitting Peter in the chest. Damn. Yes. So, the sound of the gunshot has jolted Betty and her daughter Judy out of bed. Judy was living in the home at that time. Mm. Judy sees her stepfather on the floor and runs two doors down to a neighbor's house, who is a police officer. The police officer then calls the police department. By this time, Goldine has fled the scene with Joan in the borrowed car. Joan drops off Goldine at home and they burn the costume. This part (laughs) is some bullshit. So, afterwards, they burn the costume. Joan simply says to Goldine, Forget you ever knew me, and takes off.
0: I'm going to tell on you now.
1: Joan has facilitated what she thought was a perfect murder. She had an alibi and didn't even pull the trigger herself. Although Goldine was left alone, heartbroken, mm. with the murder weapon in her possession. She bought it herself. Ooh. They did not have any plans as to how they were going to get rid of it. They thought of everything but this. So Goldine just goes to a department store and drops it off in a lockbox
0: because that's smart.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Put it in a public place. At first, police had no leads for this crime. There were no shell casings on the scene, and the only witness was a 15-year-old boy who stated that he saw a car driving at a high speed around the time of the shooting, but that was the only information they had. Mm-hmm. Betty thought she heard the voice of a man imitating a woman, which would have been Goldine so I don't know if Goldine just had a deep voice or what it was, but she thought it was a, a man imitating a woman. Hmm. The murder resembled a gang hit, so they actually looked into Peter's background and found that he had a minor record for being a bookie back in 1948, but that was about it. There was nothing that would really tie him to a murder or why anyone would want to murder him.
0: I thought he was a thug. Hmm.
1: Right. Nope. When asked if he had anyone that would want to hurt him, Betty just had one person in mind, which was Joan. She's like, that's the only person I can think of, so... It was then that apparently an anonymous tip came in, and the gun was found at the department store. Then and it was traced back to Goldine. Goldine was quick to spill the beans, and she said, "It's a relief to get this off my mind." Oh. Yep, it's a relief to get it off my mind. Goldine had not met Betty or Peter before, but she did plead insanity and stated, "Quote, I had no motive personally. Whatever motive I had was to please Joan." I was always easily influenced. I have been impressionable and always trusting. And even the psychiatrist who evaluated her would later document, quote, the only thought she had was that she had saved her friend, Joan Rabble from an evil person. Hmm. So that was her only thing. She really thought that she was just helping out her friend. She thought, well, AKA her lover, but she thought she was saving Joan from an evil person of course during this time lesbian relationships were taboo and not outwardly outwardly mentioned in the mainstream media after the murder the los angeles times would go as far as to describe their relationship as abnormal but that was about it (gasps) that's all they said so everyone kind of made their own assumptions as to what that meant for abnormal both Goldine and Joan would take a plea deal to lessen their charges from first to second degree murder and would receive sentences of five years to life. It's a crazy sentence, five years to life. Okay. So they were both raider, later released, not sure when exactly. Um, as far as Goldine, It looks like she was released sometime in 1971 and went on to become an officer in the Miracle Mile chapter of the Professional Women's Club. Oh, of
0: course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: Just murdered a man, so that's good. (laughs) I'm a professional now. She died in L.A. in 1998 at the age of 83. Records also, also show that a woman named Betty Fabiano died in 1999 at 81 years old. And it seems that no further info can really be found on Joan Rabble. Maybe so Joan she went sailing just, again. Right. She just yeah. disappeared. She was like, toodles. Ain't that about Bye. a bitch. Yes. Yeah, so that's my Halloween story. <laughs> 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 be careful for your trick or treaters. If you okay. got a straggler, keep the door locked. Just don't, don't somebody answer.
0: show it. Show up with some blue jeans and a paper bag. <laughs> um, yes. Just don't just stand don't do there.
1: It. Don't do it. Just do yeah, Just. So, my cold-hearted question to you, Natasha, is if your boyfriend, lover, girlfriend, whoever...
0: Mm, I'm open.
1: They come... (laughs) You go on a break, let's say. You're taking a break. And then, after you guys are reconciling, they admit to you, while we were on our break, I actually you know, had relations with someone else.
0: Mm. Intercourse. Yes. (laughs) I had
1: intercourse with someone else. They said it just like that. (laughs) Would you take them back?
0: We're on a break, right? Yeah. This is going to sound so bad. Um, Only because I know myself, I would say yes, because although I would make them feel like poop (laughs) for doing that. There's a 99.9% chance that I did the same thing. (laughs) So I I would, depending on how much I wanted to be with them, I would take them back only because they were honest, A and B. I'm sure I did the same thing. Yeah. Cause if you tell me break, I'm a flight risk. I'm like, okay, cool. I already had the next guy. We're on a break anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So Yeah. Yeah, I would. I, pro- okay. I probably would. Would you take them back? Um,
1: yeah, I think so. And I know this is going to sound really evil, but if later on down the, the line in the relationship, you can always use it.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> like, true.
1: Okay, when we were on a break, you cheated on my ass. Exactly. So you can do this one thing for me.
0: You better wash those I'm, bitches. You I cheated on me. I your ass back. <laughs> yeah. You I can meet definitely... me halfway right. here. <laughs> I would definitely make them feel bad, like as bad as that yeah. sounds. I would definitely use that to my advantage. Like, would
1: you tell them if you had cheated hell on them? No, too? no.
0: <laughs> you were dumb enough to be honest with me. I'm not gonna make that mistake. <laughs> I didn't ask you for your honesty. I appreciate it, but I, I'm not gonna make that mistake. I'm gonna keep my damn mouth I'm shut. I'm an angel. Exactly. I've been sitting in the house crying for three weeks, and you out there being a little whore. <laughs> How, dare How dare you! you? <laughs> I thought I knew you. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's a good story. All right. So my story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is (laughs) This is the story of Johnny Frank Garrett. Okay. He was born December twenty fourth, day before Christmas, nineteen sixty three, in Texas, to his mother Charlotte Joe Cameron. His father was unknown. So I, I didn't find any information. So I just said father unknown. All right. happens to the best of us uh now this poor boy he had a rough uh life his entire life he was given drugs and alcohol from people in his family when he was only 10 years old so it's believed that uh, he was given things that damaged the brain such as paint thinners and yeah he was also physically abused to the extent of being beaten then put on a burner the burner of a stove which caused a lot of scarring to his body it's disgusting And it gets worse. So as a child, he was also raped by his stepfather. Then he was sold to another man by his stepfather. Sold? Sold. Uh, His stepfather was kind of like, I guess. So uh, he was trafficked. Yes, exactly. Mm. He was sold to another man and he was forced to have sex with that man as well. Jeez. So at the age of 14, he was uh, already forced to perform in demeaning sex acts. And he was also forced into child gay pornography.
1: Mm-hmm. poor baby yeah he had he had a
0: rough so now we fast forward a few years and that brings us to the murder of sister and i apologize if i'm mispronouncing this but i believe it's tadia Benz. and she was murdered on halloween night in 1981 now sister angela martinez she became worried once sister uh, Benz missed chapel so she decided to go and check on her to be sure that everything was all right she was shocked to see the door of Sister's convent room close. Now, Sister Tadia, she always kept her door open because she was hard of hearing. So she needed to be able to hear the morning buzzer. So Sister Angela Martinez, she opened the door and she was not prepared for what she saw. She testified that she went into shock and could not think of what to do once she found a naked Sister Benz on the floor with her arms stretched out by her side. A quote from her was, it was too much for me. I was in shock. So four other nuns then came in, wrapped the sister's body in a sheet, cleaned up the spots of blood on the floor by her body, and they believed that the 76-year-old nun had just died from a fall. Yep. There there was blood everywhere. Mm -hmm. Cleaned it up. She just died from a fall. She was 76.
1: She fell naked.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: She she just decided to take a stroll while naked. She just fell. And fell. Okay. Sure.
0: So Sister Florentine, she then discovered a broken window later uh, that day in the community room, and she realized that that someone had broken Mm in. So they called the police to investigate the break-in, and of course, they told them about the dead naked nun (laughs) that they found on the floor earlier that day, right? (laughs) No, they did not. Oh my goodness. Sister Florentine actually said she thought about it, but she, she hesitated as everyone thought that the nun just died of natural causes and the two cases were not related.
1: Yeah, it looked like someone broke in and, you know, the only evidence that we have is a dead nun, but I really don't think that those two
0: are related. Right. So we're just not <laughs> going to say anything. Just investigate okay. this break-in and you guys go. Right. <laughs> so they cleaned up the entire crime scene. Scrubbed away DNA, everything. Wrapped the nun's body. Already were preparing her for a burial. It's a crime scene, yep. sisters. <laughs> Found a broken window and they were like, oh, these are not related. Just some little hoodlum broke into our our, our church, our oh. convent. Um. So the cops did over here are some of the nuns talking about the death of the sister. And then when the autopsy was conducted, they actually discovered that she had been raped, beaten, and strangled. She actually was stabbed, too. Um, goodness. One report i seen said that she was stow- stabbed and the knife was eventually found under the bed.
1: Oh, goodness. Mm-hmm. Do you know where she was stabbed at all? No, no. I do not. I didn't see it. I was wondering, it. like... Do you think they would have been able to see the that blood, she was stabbed? Exactly. but Right, there's so much
0: blood. like and she's naked. So that's why I only found one report that said she was stabbed. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Because you would yeah. be able to see that on the body. Right. And they found her the next morning, so I'm pretty sure it was still warm. And she probably was still, not bleeding, but it, it would have been a fresh wound.
1: The sisters might have also just been like, oh, I'm not going to look because
0: she's naked.
1: Yeah. I'm just going to wrap her up in a sheet right away and...
0: Bless I can see that too. I didn't think about that. I'm being I'm being unfair to the sisters. That's right. That's modest. you and me though.
1: Yeah. We would have been like, what happened? Let's inspect the body. Let's Open see. Are there <laughs> any yep. wounds? What's going exactly. on?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So a few months earlier, uh July 9th, 1981, Narni Cox Bryson, who was 77 at the time, she was also raped and murdered in her home down the street from the sisters. So originally the police targeted and tried to pin the murder on one of the many Cuban refugees living in Amarillo at the time, but on November 9th. 1981 Johnny Frank Garrett the poor boy we talked about earlier he is arrested and charged with the murder of Sister Tadia Benz now this case was so shocking because young Johnny at this time was only 17 years old when he was sentenced to the raping and the killing of the nun I know he had a a hard life so he was arrested because a witness claims that they saw him running from the convent that evening so his uh, defense attorney Bill uh, he believed uh, no, Well, probably uh-huh. mispronouncing these names but uh-huh. who cares right, right. Uh, he believed he was only suspected because he lived right across the street and he had a criminal record so the police claim Garrett confessed to the crimes and admitted to saying the Lord's Prayer while he was raping the sister Garrett denied this and he said he only admitted to robbing the convent 12 hours before the sister was murdered and at that time he said he was drunk and high on LSD when he broke in just to steal a stereo that's all he wanted he was just trying to steal a stereo not hurt anyone and the confession that they claimed he'd given them he never actually signed so so far, it's just their word versus his. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're saying <clears throat> that he, he confessed, but he's like that. Well, but his lawyer's like he never even signed that. You guys just said that and yeah. presented it as evidence.
1: He was also drunk and high though, so maybe he did. He might not have remembered.
0: Right. We'll get there. Okay. I guess okay. better though. Okay. okay. Ooh. Okay. Put on your seatbelt. I'll shut up. So no, no, no. Keep talking. I'm I excited. Like it. I like it. It's so during exciting. the trial. During the trial, they attacked this character uh, because he was a trouble teen who had a record, of course. So it was easy for the jurors to see him as someone with motive and capable of committing this horrible crime. So in September 1982, Garrett is convicted in the murder of the sister and sentenced to death. His mother begged jurors not to kill him. She shouted out much how much she loved him over and over. And once he was convicted and told he would die by lethal injection, he actually pushed the book in front of him. He hit it hard to the side and he shouted, I did not kill her, man. It was like a very emotional scene mm. in the courthouse between he and his mother. A human rights organization described him as a severely mentally handicapped, and one of his lawyers, Warren Clark, actually said he's simply too crazy to kill. They felt he was insane and suffered from multiple personality syndrome and from all of the physical and sexual abuse he suffered as a child this kind of um was the the leading factor in why they felt he was mentally unstable mm-hmm. and the supreme court ruled at that time that a person who was insane and cannot comprehend the reasons behind execution cannot be put to death and a mental health expert described him as one of the most um virulent i don't know that word virulent how's it spelled it's v-i-r-u-l-e-n-t virulent yeah that sounds good i like that virulent I like learning new words, so you we guys know us how to pronounce it. Right? <laughs> I should have looked it up before now, but can I was like, let's find out on the air how we pronounce this word, right? shall we? Um, <laughs> that uh, histories of abuse and neglect that he had encountered in 28 years of practice. But the prosecutor said that he was not normal. Um, but he also, while he was not normal, he was completely aware of what he did and understood the consequences from that crime. Now, here's some crap for you, tushy. Okay, you ready? Oh, okay. Information about Johnny's abusive childhood was not made available to the jury. What? Yep. So they only knew about his criminal history and nothing about his mental state or why his life even turned out the way that it did.
1: Why would they frame it that way? Wouldn't? Didn't the defense have that information? So for Wouldn't, some
0: reason, they were not allowed to present this information to... Why and even if his defense was, we'll get there, his defense was kind of... They were state-appointed, so they kind of okay. were just like, man, we just kind of doing the bare minimum. We think you kind of did it anyway. Yeah. You're so not doing your later, job, though. Exactly. So, yeah. um, and it was also later discovered by the police. Um, the, the police at this time, they had concluded that it was a Hispanic male who had beat 10 women in Amarillo in their homes, and black hairs were actually found at both of the scenes where the two women had been murdered. Mm -hmm. garrett was white and had brown hair so ralph erdman a west texas main uh west texas main forensic person in the 1980s he ended up pleading no contest to falsifying autopsies and tampering with evidence after serious omissions were found in about 100 of his cases yeah. So many that came, uh, many of those cases actually came with felony convictions. So Ardman discarded semen samples taken from Sister Ben's and testified that he threw the simple samples out because no one told him to save it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they didn't tell me to save it, so I just threw them in the trash.
1: Yeah, it's not like that would be important right. at all. No. And years
0: later, when he was actually asked about the case, he claimed he didn't recall
1: sounds like a big dummy Mm
2: -hmm. Mm
0: -mm. now an hour before um johnny was supposed to be executed on january 6 1982 governor ann richards granted a shocking reprieve and she wanted the board uh, the board to actually consider commuting his sentence to life in prison the board went on and voted 17 to zero for the death sentence again what yep so even though the it's catholic diocese baby. of Amarillo, uh, they were against the death as well as the pope john paul and the nuns from even the nuns from the sisters comment they were like yo don't yeah. don't kill them we trying to do appeals for clemency we don't want them to die they ruled again they were like 17 to 0 no we want the death penalty what the heck so one month later on february 11th 1982 with no more appeals 28 year old johnny garrett is executed by lethal injection for the murder of Sister Tadia Benz. Mm. The The state of Texas had no problem convicting and killing a mentally disabled juvenile. Garrett was the 44th person put to death in Texas since the Supreme Court allowed the resumption of capital punishment in 1976. And that was, at that time, that total was the highest of any state. Wow. So Garrett's famous last words were, I'd like to thank my family for loving me and taking care of me and the rest of the world can kiss my ass.
1: That sounds about right. Exactly. Sounds like he's got it together more than a lot of these
0: people. Yeah. (laughs) He was saying enough for his last words to be like, I know I didn't do this. Y'all can kiss my ass. My family, I love y'all, but the rest of y'all can kiss my ass.
1: love my family, but y'all can kiss my ass.
0: Exactly. And kiss your ass indeed, Darren, because 12 years after he was executed, Jesse Mm. Quackenbush... Quacking Bush. Quackin' Bush. Quack. <laughs> he went on to free his name, well, in an attempt to free his name. He said, The old and newly discovered evidence of Johnny Frank Garrett's innocence is so compelling, it will cause even the most bloodthirsty proponents of the death penalty to shake their heads in doubt. He went on a hunt, a hunt, and he wanted the to reset the DNA evidence that was found that day, and he wanted the actual person who committed these crimes to actually be brought to justice. Mm-hmm. So the DA for the Potter uh, County District Attorney, Rebecca King, King, she claimed that they were not hiding anything, but there were certain procedures of criminal and civil law that have to be met. So she would not release anything from that crime scene until the judge decided to reopen the case. Now, if you don't have anything to hide, why are you not releasing this information?
1: Right. If you don't have anything to worry about, just release your shit. Exactly. It's not that hard.
0: Now, it gets crazy, y'all. Ready for this? Oh, Time to wrap shit. up okay now remember we talked about 77- 77 year old Narni bryson right the one who was killed down the road from the sister yeah it was just a few months before yeah so the DA at the time thought that the women were killed by the same person because the murder was so identical Narni was beaten raped and strangled with a telephone cord she also suffered several bones uh broken bones oh. during the attack okay. leoncio perez ruda R- 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 oh I know, yeah, don't check my names, guys. Um, He was in jail uh, after, in March 2004, authorities matched his DNA with semen samples collected from Narni's murder. He was a Cuban refugee and fit the description that the cops said all this time.
1: Mm-hmm. I even wrote a note as I was listening to you talking. I said, "Blame refugees!" Question mm-hmm. mark exclamation point.
0: Because when I first <laughs> was reading this case, I was like, "That seems kind of racist." They just exactly, it. but they were right. This stuff. Oh time. shit. Yep. <laughs> so this is one of those things where even though they were, it, it was kind of racially motivated. Yeah. They were right. Oh it was a gosh. Cuban refugee all this time, and the hair that they found at the scene actually went with that. Mm. But they were like, "No, we're gonna pin it on this." 19 17 year old white guy
1: it's so unfortunate though that he had broken in around that same yeah. time That's too so it just kind of tied him in and
0: yeah just to still a stereo
1: yeah and it just kind of sucked him into the whole thing and the timing was really really bad yeah <laughs> really bad for him
0: poor guy so on January 3rd, 2005, uh, the Cuban refugee guy we talked about, he pled guilty to the rape and murder of Narnie Bryson. He went on to admit to Quackenbush mm. in an interview that he raped and killed a nun on Halloween night as well. Quack. Mm-hmm. Quackin so Jesse Quackenbush uh, went on to create a film called The Last Word to clear, to clear Johnny's name and exonerate him. He states, this kid got dealt a crummy hand and his lawyers were mostly uninspired, incompetent, or simply did not care. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Obviously. Right. Oh they didn't even goodness. present any of this child's prior trauma to the jurors.
1: I-, I feel like you and I should just be lawyers.
2: We should be.
0: <laughs> be much better than or at least
1: these people. Get, paid.
2: Yeah, like get paid like, get like paid. lawyers
1: <laughs> to do our <laughs> podcast. Okay. Like, comment, and sub- subscribe.
0: <laughs> okay. Like, comment, and subscribe. Follow our Instagram page, Blood Sisters Podcast. Blood okay, Sisters thanks. with a Z. Okay. Um, another quote that I like from Quackenbush was, I would not hesitate to estimate that there are probably dozens of cases out there where bodies need to be dug up. But who's going to do it? Nobody has the money or time. So I'm hoping with this one case, people will start to realize that was just a bad error. And uh, Amarillo and the Panhandle. Not just here, but Lubbock as well Mm. so here's this lawyer admitting like Texas we fail a lot of people we have just been executing people left and right and forcing these guilty verdicts with bad (laughs) evidence
1: and for what just so that you can close a case and say that you closed it
0: exactly that's bullshit now the hair and semen samples collected didn't matter because the experts testified that the samples could not have been exclusively linked to Garrett that's just another little fun fact link this right now Garrett's sister Janet Dobson who was 12 at the time of his arrest she said her brother didn't finish high school and had a history of petty crimes she also described him as a little slow and a follower the most important thing that they wanted this film to show was that her brother was innocent the family still lives in Amarillo so they feel that the film did bring them closer to closure his sister says she isn't bitter anymore but she and her mother both cannot forgive those who killed Garrett until there is an official apology Is there
1: any apology? There has not been. Fuck them. Exactly.
0: (laughs) And so a quote from her is if you're going to sentence somebody to death, you need to make sure they're guilty of that crime. You'd think that would not need to be said. You'd think that would be like
1: (laughs) 101. Exactly. Lawyer school 101.
0: (laughs) Right. Whatever it is. And and that, my friends, is a story of Johnny Garrett, the innocent man convicted of murdering and raping the nun on Halloween night, 1981.
1: Rest in peace, baby Johnny.
0: Yeah, baby Johnny. He just, oh. his entire life was just bad from start to finish. This poor baby did not have a chance. Dealt a shitty fucking hand. Absolutely. Ugh. Now, my cold-hearted question this week for you, Miss Malta. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Mata. 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 <laughs> yeah. um, inside jokes. <laughs> if someone very close to you—I don't want to give a name or anything—but someone who really means a lot to you in life, if they were wrongfully convicted of murder and executed. If the opportunity presented itself where you could seek revenge on the people responsible for lying and getting them convicted and ultimately murdered, would you do so?
1: Yeah. I think I might. Wow. I think I might because you know what? One person got wrongfully convicted. Let's see if I get rightfully convicted. Let's see Ooh. how the system handles it.
0: I like Fuck that. them. Eye for an eye fuck the
1: whole system at that point if that were to happen to a loved one i'd be like fuck the whole system i don't give a shit
0: i know that's right i and don't know why i thought you would be like well no because i want to take the high road get it. <laughs> no not today i like that answer no nope. nope. i like yep. that craziness in you let's see what happens yeah huh at least it, even
1: if for some <laughs> crazy reason the system worked their correct way and it somehow you know got me they yeah. somehow arrested me for it it psh, you can go a with shit? a smile on your face who gives a shit yeah I would just be like well I got my revenge you fucking I know that's cares.
0: right mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like that answer mm-hmm. I think I would do. not I think I know I would do the same thing mm-hmm. yeah Give me a gun and an address. I'm there. Like, (laughs) you guys have been probably, that probably wasn't even the first time, and that would not be the last time. So, in my mind, I'm kind of like a martyr, and I'm like, I'm going to save another family from going through the same hell that my family just went through. Oh, yeah. Somebody got to pay. Yeah. Oh, probably Johnny. Okay. Well, that's our two (laughs) Halloween specials. Yeah.
1: And we will go forward with our buddy, Rachel, who is on vacay. Mm-hmm. Rachel, get it.
0: What you got, girl?
2: <laughs> My Halloween horror story is about William B.J. Liskey. We're going to just refer to him as B.J. through this segment. Bill and Suzanne Liskey got married in 2001. Bill is... B.J.'s father, and Suzanne is his stepmother. Uh, Suzanne has two boys, Devon and Derek Griffin. Um, B.J. resented Suzanne from the beginning. He had become a problem child once Bill got remarried. He started skipping school and misbehaving, much so acting out of character. For example, in 2002, Bill called the police because B.J. threatened to harm himself. However, when the police got there, he attacked the police, causing him to face um, assault charges in the juvenile court. In 2004, he got into a physical altercation with his stepmother, and two months after that, he was charged with assault and robbery for hitting her with a coffee cup and stealing her car. He was found incompetent to stand trial, and those charges was eventually dropped. BJ has a laundry list of offenses, including the attempted attack on Suzanne in the shower in 2006. His father put him out, but still applied for guardianship over him, and the application quotes, Mr. Liskey wants to protect William and get him the help that he needs. He would eventually like to see him in a halfway house or a group home. Um, when William is on his medication, he really does well. After a while, he stops taking the medication because he thinks he's okay and he starts drinking and smoking pot. Bill got his son into a halfway house in Sandusky and he went to see him often. Um... Just side note, he had gotten two physical altercations with his father right there at the halfway house. Um, BJ is just a problem child. Um, anyway, one week Bill took a vacation, some vacation time, and he decided to go to the family cabin in Carroll County, that's in Ohio. Um, and this cabin they use uh strictly for haunting. Um, they went there to um, hunt deer, um, and he actually picked up his son um, to go with him. So it was just them two at the cabin. Uh, they returned home in Ottawa County October 30th, but Bill didn't take his son home. They actually had a little gathering in the yard with some neighbors and some friends. Uh, Bill had too much to drink, so he didn't take B.J. home Um in Sandusky. He actually um had him just stay the night. Um they made him a a pallet out on the couch and he stayed the night there. Now normally he wouldn't stay the night because of his violent outbursts. Um and he he and Suzanne don't get along. He and his stepbrother Devon also don't get along. Uh no not Devon Derek. He and Derek don't get along. This weekend Devon was at uh his step his father's house. He was spending time over at his father's house and that Sunday, October 31st, Halloween, he uh, came home to change his shirt so he can go sing in the choir. Gunshots were heard that morning by Michelle, a neighbor that was also at the party. She heard those gunshots at about 6.30 in the morning. Um, Devon comes home at about 9.30 in the morning to change his shirt. He was only there about five minutes, so he didn't encounter anybody but BJ. And he said BJ was upbeat and happier. And he asked him where he was going and how long he was going to be gone. And divine thought it was strange because he says BJ is normally gloomy, slow, and darkish. So it was just a little strange for BJ to, you know, be talking to divine about where he's going and his whereabouts. He just thought it was strange. divine only spent about an hour and a half at church. And when he came home, he went right to his game, right to his playstation or whatever he was playing and he didn't realize that the house was a little too quiet until about one thirty. so he was on that game for a little while playing and the house was a little too quiet for him so he headed straight for his mother's room and he noticed that the covers was covering um was over her face over her and bill's faces so he's talking you know He goes in the room and he's talking probably like, hey, mom, like, are you awake? Are you getting up anytime soon? He's probably just being casual. And when he gets over to her bed and he pulls the covers off of her face, he sees a bunch of blood. He sees she's laying in blood. And at first he thought it was a Halloween prank. But it was too much blood and it was way too gory. And he realized it was not a Halloween prank. So he leaves the house, runs out of the house, and he calls his aunt, Aunt Lori Morse. She came by the house and she um, he told her what happened. She's consoling him and then she called the police. When the police got there, they discovered the gruesome scene that BJ created. Bill was shot in the head. Five times shot in the head and his face, super close range, one to two feet, um and he was in a sleeping position, so that means b j shot him in his sleep. The gunshots clearly woke up Suzanne, and she was shot three times in her head, but the way she the way her body was. Uh, she was like sprawled, so she wasn't s- sleeping. She Gunshots woke her up, and he shot her back down. When the police went to Derek's room, they noticed that the door was locked, so they had to kick the door in. And Derek was found curled up in the bed. He was beaten to death with a claw hammer. And they found the bloody hammer in the house, and the hammer matched the wounds, this claw hammer. Um, They did not find the 22 caliber gun that B.J. used on his parents. Deputies found B.J. at the family cabin with an uneaten Subway sandwich. So this man actually had the nerve to go get food after he butchered his entire family. Except one. My questions before I go on was why he didn't kill the the 16 year old he killed he killed Derek and Derek was 23 at the time and he did not he did not kill Devon and because the gunshots was heard at 6 30 in the morning then that that means he killed them early in the morning and maybe he Waited for divine, or he was going to wait for divine, and maybe he decided not to. Maybe he didn't want to kill divine. I have no idea why he let divine go free. And he was actually happy to talk to him. So maybe divine wasn't, you know, a pest in his life. Maybe everybody else was. Anyway, B.J. was held on a three million dollar bail bond. At first, the bond was just one million. He was only charged with killing his father, and then the next week, it, it, it spiked up to three million—one million for each death that he caused. He was charged with multiple counts of aggravated murder for each death, and there was actually a gag order on the prosecutors and the defense team. No one was able to talk about this case outside of the courtroom. Um, before BJ was to stand trial, he needed to go through a psychiatric evaluation before March 18th. William was evaluated first at the court diagnostic and treatment center in toledo and then his attorneys at at his attorney's request at the twin valley behavioral health care in columbus based on their reports ottawa county common pleas judge bruce winters ruled that Liskey was competent to stand trial prosecutors wanted Death. they wanted he him to have the death penalty they wanted him to suffer for what he did three people slain one day for no reason he got to go BJ did plead guilty for the death of each member in exchange for the death penalty being removed Um, the defense team asked for mercy and that's the only mercy that they got September 14th 2011 he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole um and March 31st 2015 at age 29 BJ killed himself in his prison cell and that's it for that story um my thoughts on uh, Mr. William BJ Liskey I just do not understand why he decided to kill his family the way he did and when he did they his father had took some vacation time they had went hunting Uh, I read that they had uh, uh, killed one deer and they had they were actually going to go hunt more on that Sunday they had a good time from what I read they had they had a good time everything was fine even the neighbor said that the party that they had ran smoothly um, and there was no problems uh, Derek was not at the party because you know they don't he and BJ didn't get along so of course the party should have gone smoothly they let him stay the night you know Everything was fine, and then he kills the family. Why? I want to know why. Everything was fine. And he killed them early in the morning and then went and got food. He did not care. And he even said in in the courtroom that he wasn't sure. Why he killed his his family or his dad. And that he loved his dad. And maybe it had something to do with his mental illness. I just don't feel like you can blame your mental illness when you did it on purpose. And, he, and by the way, he even raped Susan. After he killed her. He raped her. This boy is sick. And as far as I'm concerned... He deserved everything that he got, including killing himself. Because that was just very evil.
1: Wow. Well, thank you, Rachel, for that wonderful story there. (laughs) Thank you. Bless your heart. Hope you're having fun uh, on your vacay. We miss you. We miss you. Long time. (laughs) Come back soon. Right. (laughs) Bring me a magnet. That will do it for this episode of Blood Sisters. (laughs) Mm, 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 mm. (laughs) Remember to like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as search for us anywhere podcasts are found which would be Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you find podcasts, we're there.
0: And be sure to follow our brand spanking new Instagram page. Insta. At Blood Sisters with a Z podcast on Instagram.
1: Blood Sisters podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Happy Halloween, everyone. I am Natasha Carr with
1: Christina Mata.
0: Flirting with darkness and promoting weird brown girl joy. Until next time. Peace.